Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolitsich of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. There's actually different worldviews that are in conflict here, and there's a much more interesting story to tell, I think, that is getting this and sort of just a lot of the media stories of it. It's not just kind of a paint this all in one brush kind of billionaire mindset, I wanted to actually break down what are the values that are at conflict here. And it's not just, I think, frivolous infighting. I think a lot of the conflicts derive from differences in how people made their money, how they want to influence the world, what they genuinely care about. I think everyone is actually genuinely caring for something that they really believe in. So I think what is missing, at least for me in these narratives, is some sort of agenda or vision or something for people to aspire to and get excited about. Because I think a lot of people are feeling sort of disengaged or just jaded from seeing how this clash between these two worldviews is kind of devolving into just pure culture politics. Of. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. Let's get into your Silicon Valley Civil War piece in Tablet. This is something that you've been thinking about for a long time, but you have a lot more to say on the topic. How do you even start by talking about what you were trying to achieve in that piece? What is the conversation you're hoping that people take from it? Or what were you trying to do in that piece? Yeah, I feel so many of the political and social controversies, conflict, et cetera, that we're seeing, especially in and around sort of tech world, but are now kind of breaking on sort of water stage. I feel a lot of the conversations are really bottled right now. So they'll talk about billionaires, they'll talk about elites, but then they're kind of like mixing everyone together. They're like, I feel like there's there's sort of this pervasive belief that all rich people are the same or all powerful people are the same and, you know, ban them all or abolish them all or whatever. And it just, it feels really anthropologist and we want to put that hat on and be like, okay, but there's actually different worldviews that are in conflict here. And like, there's a much more interesting story to tell, I think, that is getting this and sort of just a lot of the media stories of it. It's not just kind of about paint this all in one brush kind of billionaire mindset, I wanted to actually break down what are the values that are at conflict here? And it's not just, I think, frivolous infighting. I think a lot of the conflicts derive from differences in how people made their money, how they want to influence the world, what they genuinely care about. I think everyone is actually genuinely caring for something that they really believe in. And I wanted to kind of showcase that more as a portrait of here are two different worldviews right now, zeroing on these two generations of elites. Here are two different worldviews that are in conflict right now. And here's why each of them genuinely believe that they're fighting for the right thing. That's a good overview. Let's go through your brackets just to set the table here. So you have the Davos elite and the, the startup elite. Why don't you define those those different types of elites and, and where the conflicts kind of stem from? Yeah, the tension between the two generations that I was looking at right now. And I think, you know, they're 
there are generations of elites that are still around even now that are maybe from older generations. But I find these two interesting because they're both still in the workforce right now and they're both sort of actively battling for the America's public institutions. And so, yeah, the Davos elite made their wealth on Wall Street, finance, global corporate kind of scale in the 80s and the 90s, and uh, then sort of took that power in the wealth of the Mass and then used that to sort of execute this vision of what many people have called the Davos man, which is a very globalist view of the world of de-emphasizing national borders, focusing on sort of this collective kind of mindset and how people can be very, very interconnected rather than sort of asserting individual entrepreneurship or influence. And then the next generation that I think is sort of rising right now. So I think that the Davos is sort of very firmly entrenched at this point and has actually done a really, when we kind of zoom out from personal views or whatever, I would say their playbook was pretty successful and is probably actually something worth learning from. And then I think this sort of ascendant group right now that we're seeing are people that, that cultural tech leaders, startup elite, people that sort of made their wealth in tech and startups in the 2010s onwards. And it sort of defined that point because that was cloud computing just drastically lower the cost of startups. You had sort of the rise of Y Combinator as an institution that could help accelerate the and legitimize the creation of startups. So it was a really different period, the Bill Gates era of startups, let's say. Um, but yeah, people that made their wealth in the 2010s and who now have a completely different view where it's much more, much more about the lone founder kind of archetype who can sort of break institutions and, and sort of, yeah, lead with this very individualist mindset, a much stronger focus on finding and uncovering the best talent in the world and then sort of centralizing them all into one place. And so, yeah, Davos side is kind of more about global citizenship. And I think the tech lead is kind of much more about this individualist loan founder mindset. I think what's great about Nadia's piece is that I think she put her finger on something that we've all been feeling, right? Which, as you said, tech is not monolithic. There, there's no they there for as much as Kara might, might tweet in that direction. And one of the few viral tweet threads I had go viral this year, because I don't really do these things anymore, was a comment about how Elon taking over Twitter and firing most of middle management is actually an oppositional thing, right? Some people were kind of shocked by it. But in fact, people, Elon, and some of the other people that you mentioned in your piece, Nadia, have more in common sort of politically and spiritually, if not net worth-wise, with a YC founder, right? While the VP at Google or some engineering managers at Twitter, just to cite middle management examples, are really kind of that professional managerial class that are much more a part, a continuum with that, with that Davos elite. And those are, those are not the same set of people with the same set of values, right? And uh, Arguably, right, I think Alana, who we're going to interview very soon as well, an editor for Tablet, had a great piece about how one of the great divides in society is institutionalist versus anti-institutionalist. And I think the Elons of the world and the David Sachs of the world are, are really deeply anti-institutionalist, even though they seem institutional in that, well, I mean, he owns an institution called Twitter. And of course, one of the questions you might ask of them is, can these radicals sort of govern, right? Which is the question of every revolutionary once they've gone to the Capitol and seized the radio station, as Elon sort of has, well, can they, can they make, the, you know, can they still pick up the garbage and make the healthcare system work or whatever? So that's one of the questions to me. But again, it's, it really is a, a pretty serious divide, I think, in tech. And uh, I think people outside of it don't understand it well. It's a really good point that when we talk about these sort of generational worldviews or elite generations or whatever, first of all, I don't think it's a purely chronological thing. It's not, oh, if you, were, you know, if you made your money in the 80s, therefore you can't align with what's happening right now. It's much more about like, these were moments in time that established a new sort of paradigm or worldview that people either choose to align themselves towards or not. And so there are plenty of people that made money in tech and decided to align with sort of like the most recent generation. And then there are other people that made money and decided, actually, I don't really have that sort of worldview. There's a different worldview at play right now that I'm going to align myself to. And yeah, I love a lot of the piece, I think, really captured the, you have to boil it down to one sentence. I think there is 
I, I really liked her piece because I think she also made a point, and this is something I really want to drive home. I don't think this is a political thing. This is not about liberals and conservatives or whatever. And I just think really flattens the conversation when we talk about it that way. I think it really is much more about when there is a crisis or a conflict, do people see institutions as a source of safety and security, or do they believe instead of, you know, looking at things for first principles and trying to develop a solution based on the evidence that they have? And there's a, there, there are times when either one of those solutions is better or worse, but I think that is sort of, and we saw it in the pandemic as well, where it's just people either freak out and say, even if the CDC is saying things that I don't agree with, I just trust them because they are the authorities. And then there's some people who felt, actually, I don't really agree with that at all. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit my own, you know, common sense. And so I'm going to think of things a different way, but that's not a political thing. That's just a, you know, how, how do you respond to conflict kind of thing, I think. How does effective altruism factor into this? For especially for the kind of call it the 2010s wealthy? They're a really weird. I think they're really mischaracterized right now or miscategorized. And I can't tell whether I'm just crazy or something because I keep trying to drive this and I don't, I don't know whether other people feel this way. But in my view, effective altruism is very squarely from the Davos worldview kind of generation and that it has the same sort of approach. Well, first off, kind of more global cause folks, global cause focus that is sort of detached from local context. And also the sort of, you know, let's run an algorithm to determine what the best causes are or how to rank and prioritize them. That is a classic finance kind of thinking, right? That's a spreadsheet thinking. But for whatever reason, it has continued to find some kind of hold in tech or be associated in tech. And if you talk to some people that, you know, don't work in tech, they see it as that is tech philanthropy. They associate it with tech. And it's really bizarre to me because it just doesn't align with the sort of tech elite generation or whatever you want to call it, that, that second emergent worldview. It, yeah, it just completely breaks down. Also, I don't really understand why it continues to be associated with tech when I'm like, I feel like it's from a different generation. And I think part of it is just that it's, there. there is some portion of people in tech that just, I think sometimes there's just maybe a failure of imagination or a failure of understanding what it means to wield one's influence in the world. And this might just be my personal view. But, and so the easiest thing for them to understand is if I put it in a spreadsheet, then I can feel comfortable determining that I picked the most worthy cause or something. But I just feel zooming out from that entire system, how to rank and prioritize what you work on. It's like the entire system just makes no sense. Or, or that's my view, I guess. I, the entire system does not feel aligned with what I consider to be the best of tech and the best of stars in that kind of 2010 era. So I, I really struggle with it. A lot of that EA world has aligned itself as anti-AI, which in my view is fundamentally anti-tech. And typically, I mean, if one of the good virtues of the tech world is typically liking disruption for the sake of disruptive change and typically being optimistic about technology. The default view towards a new technology is this will work out for the best, which is a little bit religious and, and faith-based, but nonetheless, that's the reflex action. And that's not the case we're getting from the you know EA, AI alarmist type people. It is really, I don't know if we want to get into the AI stuff, but it feels, it doesn't pattern match. When I look at it on paper, it seems to clearly represent a new technological paradigm shift similar to the, all the other ones we've seen in history. Okay, I can, I can 100% see the case for that. But then sort of the the behavior of people that are involved in space where it's that, I think Solana called it the, like regulate me daddy kind of mindset, right? Where it's just like... <laughs> it's such a Solana <laughs> statement. <laughs> like, what? When in history that had technologists being please, please regulate me is like just really confusing. And I don't have a clear view on it, but it, it's just, it doesn't match history at all. And there's something strange about that. Um, Maybe the unlock is that most of the AI alarmists are not actually technologists who are building anything, as a matter of fact. 
And most yeah. of them are the content moderation people, people who've never actually had a job as a PM or EM inside the tech company. If Nathan LeBenz was here, he would say how a lot of the leading researchers and developers and CEOs are you know, signing on to the letters, encouraging, pausing. Yeah, I think it's more widespread than, than you just said. And yet they're all raising fundraising rounds around AI yeah. and hundred plus companies inside WayC. I mean, you can sign any piece paying, of paper. They're also signing talk term sheets for their AI yeah. startups, by the way. And, and talk, what's his face? Right. And Yudkowsky there appearing with a photo with Sam Altman. I mean, shouldn't be trying to assassinate him like John Connor in the Terminator or something. I think it's all ridiculous. Sorry, I'm not going to go on Altair here, but the whole thing is just so hypocritical and ridiculous. But it is interesting because you wouldn't say that the Davos mindset. I'm trying to really understand like, what is the crux of a difference between someone, Mark Benioff or Reid Hoffman and, you know, Peter Thiel and, uh, you know, Mark Jason and Elon. I think this is what Alana identified so well is the difference between those two types of figures is do you look to the safety and the security of institutions to enact the change that you want to see in the world? And that is the, you know, the philanthropic capitalism, 501c3 foundation kind of mindset where, you, you know, I start an organization and that organization drives some change in the world. That, that is the sort of Davos mindset versus, I think, a Peter Thiel type mindset that says, no, change happens through individuals who are determined to do something really different. And that's where you have to find the very best people and then empower them. This is where I kind of worry, I guess, and Antonio touched on this a little bit earlier, of do the revolutionaries have laps to actually codify their, this change, right? Because it's in, inherent in their worldview is that institutions are not the way forward. They don't want to collaborate with them. They don't want to start them. That's actually very unusual compared to all previous wealth generations, right? It's, it's strange that they, they aren't doing that, but it's it's so like central to their worldview. But then it's like, okay, but if you don't do that, then how how do you sort of encode your values into public society so that when you die, they continue to sort of propagate? I don't have a great answer to that yet, but they're going to have to come up with a strategy. But they're building institutions though. The Teal, Elon, Andreessen, it's time to build. Build what? Build startups? Yeah, I think, I think what Nadia's putting your finger on, I think is... Most criticisms of tech are unfounded, I think, but one criticism that I think is real is that, yeah, the techies have basically absented themselves from the political and cultural landscape. I'm, I'm sitting here in San Francisco and Soma in a city that's having all sorts of problems that we can go on and on about. I walk out to the MoMA, the museum, and I go see the Diego Rivera exhibit, and there isn't a single tech name on the sponsor list. And you go to the Met in New York, and every little hedge fund motherfucker who's an asshole and a corporate raider and whatever still pays his indulgence to every cultural institution in the city. Carl Icahn, who is a hedge fund asshole, has a hospital named after himself there. Now, there's a couple here, the Benioff Hospital, Zuckerberg in general. But broadly speaking, this has been the site of the greatest wealth creation, potentially in human history, potentially in human history. And it looks like a rundown, decrepit city in which no, none of that tech wealth is actually invested in what would be considered the typical civic infrastructure of the city. That, I think, is not necessarily invalid critique of tech, that they have not invested in what are the traditional institutions of, of society in a way that, again, as much as you might dislike them, you go to the our museum in Houston and it's funded by Exxon and Chevron, right? And, and you go to, to New York and it's funded by the local industry. There, there's almost no such thing. This is where I'm like, I don't, I don't share the Davos worldview personally, but we did have a good playbook. And I, you know, the, I don't think that tech, I don't like, I think the whole point is that Technically, are going to do something different. They are going to leave a different legacy. It's not going to be the same shape as before. It's fine if they don't want to put underneath the hospitals, but then they need to do something. And I think there is, I do feel like tech ecosystem is just so insular still, where we create, you know, cultural artifacts for ourselves, but then we circulate them amongst ourselves when there's not an understanding that the rest of the world doesn't know what tech stands for. And so then they just assume that tech is just yet another bunch of rich assholes. The Wall Street elites of like previous generation 
they don't see any evidence of them doing anything. And so, yeah, I, I think that, that critique is not unfounded. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Do you think this is all downstream of just Elon, right? Basically, Gates kind of is Davos man, but you know, using his money to malaria, polio. But then Elon is, I'm going to take my, space, or my PayPal money and do SpaceX and Tesla. And now you have a generation of billionaire founders who are, why would I give my money to philanthropy when I can just be so brilliant and create the next five great companies? And the reality is only one person's done that. It's Elon. Everyone else is trying and putting money into it. But look at Bezos. He bought the Washington Post. He's got a rocket company that has a contract, but they haven't put anything into orbit. Yeah. But I think even a SpaceX and a Tesla could have so much better stories than they do right now. And it's, I, I just don't understand it well enough to have an opinion on why that is happening. But I mean, before, yeah, before meeting my husband, I kind of just was sort of disinterested in space. So I'm not pro and I guess I was just kind of like, whatever. It's just not that it, it seems sort of hyped up. And it's only because someone, you know, now I'm married to someone who sits and talks about it all the time that I understand like, why SpaceX is interesting. And if you ask an average person street why SpaceX is interesting, they might be like, oh, it's cool to go into space. Or like, oh, it's, they don't see the difference between sort of the Bezos or the Musk mindsets or visions or whatever. And the story is never that, like, oh, SpaceX is, you know, railroads from the, <laughs> from the industrial area of we're, we're laying down the railroads to expand into new frontiers. That's a good story. That infrastructure, that's transport, it opens up. Sony, but that story isn't happening. And then Tesla, I mean, it, the, I was thinking of when the White House didn't invite Tesla to the summit or whatever, whatever that, that was that happened. It's just like, before Tesla, there was that documentary about like, who killed the electric car. People just thought like electric cars were dead and over. There should be a story there about how it's impact, this really positive impact that they kickstarted. But then like, Tesla has no marketing department and Tesla doesn't care what you think about it or something. And so it's just, it feels like maybe the raw materials are there if they want to tell a different story. It doesn't have to be that Elon donated a bunch of money to some climate change initiative. Tesla can be the story, but then you got to tell, tell the story. I think actually, if I were to try to come up with the best story for how tech sees its impact in the world, I think the reason everyone keeps focusing on startups is because they look at history and they say, lowering the cost of these really amazing services or making them more widely available to everyone over time is the best thing I can do for humanity, right? Like there's this meme of the poorest person today is still living way better than kings from 100 years ago or whatever. And I think in there is some kind of seed of why tech believes that building stars is actually really, really good for the world. It's technology is good for everyone. It benefits everyone. But then someone needs to put that all together and tell the full story. Oh, but that, but that's the problem, Nadia. That, that's spreadsheet thinking, right? To, to, I mean, just because you cited the spreadsheet example before of actually, yes, calculating the hedons of a poor person now versus a wealthy person before. But I think if, if you look at part of the reason why people aren't that excited by space, and I am excited by SpaceX, to be clear, but or even why, for example, Neil Armstrong objected to SpaceX or was you know, on record as saying SpaceX is a good idea, is because the space race was something that said USA with an American flag on it and was in the context of this sort of titanic struggle between worldviews, between capitalism and, and communism. And, and human, uh, Americans looked at that and looked at the US Olympic team winning gold, right? And you don't look at SpaceX. And, you know, Elon with his outrageous tweets to go and pop your arm and say, yeah, that's us. You don't feel like you have skid in the game. And again, obviously SpaceX, without SpaceX, 
our, and Dan has more of the details here, our payload capacity would be zero. SpaceX has basically saved American sort of space technology worlds, right? But Nadia, I would actually say that Tesla had a moment in time, and then I think part of it, it was just, there was always this struggle to even keep it viable, where it was actually a status symbol for progressive people, right? It went from the Prius to Tesla as the way to signal, virtual signal, hey, look, I care about climate change. And then I think as Elon started to tweet and, and kind of and, and the most recent interview where he's just like, I don't care. I'm just going to say whatever I want. Now people are like, wait, wait a second. I don't care nearly as much about the outputs here. The Model Y is now the best selling car in America, period. More than a Corolla, right? So the guy has mainstreamed electric cars, but Rocket Man bad because he has the wrong political beliefs and what he says on Twitter. So I'm going to backfill that. Yeah, we're going to ignore the fact that he actually made electric cars viable and all of the majors are switching over to electric cars because of Tesla. We're just not going to invite him to the White House because it doesn't share the right political beliefs. So they actually don't care about electric cars. They care about people who follow the, the kind of say the right shibboleths and then do electric cars. How do I fix that? We just need better leaders. I mean, I'm, I'm not a Elon fangirl or anything. And when I look at those specific accomplishments, those are great accomplishments. I do, on the flip side, feel frustrated that those accomplishments are getting steamrolled by just a bunch of noise about Elon as an eccentric character. I think it's a distraction, right? And I don't know how to address that, but people deserve to hear the real story or understand the real story. Maddie, when, when you say that Davos Man has been successful relative to the startup elite, you're referring to the idea that the Davos elite has made their stories popular beyond the, in the broader community, has had access in politics or success in, in politics and media and, and academia. Is, is that where defined? Define yeah, I mean, this is cheesy, but I'm just, it sucks that people think that the world is falling apart right now because it's not. And I, that's where I think stories are important. Like people think it's falling apart because they're still attached to this sort of declining elite or these decaying institutions or this really stagnant worldview. But there is a better worldview, I think. I think a lot of people really connect to it, but the portrait has to be painted. And I, I, I kind of worry about all this kind of just devolving into politics, maybe tech elite does understand now or, or some at least some of them seem to understand Elon that you know they're they're fighting for something different than sort of like status quo but then I don't want that just to fall into this you know political swarmel that just everyone just tunes out because it's depressing and it's like a bunch of large people arguing right I think the whole role of elite is public stewardship and as a public leader it is on you to sort of make that story tangible to the average person who is depressed about America. They shouldn't feel depressed about America and you have all the raw material to make them not feel depressed and then put it all together. Can I put my finger on one thing? And I might be the one who's veering out of the Overton window for the first time. Part of why Elon pissed off so many people with Twitter, right, is the Cthulhu theory of modern elites, right? Which is that there's this rotating, look at former SFDA, Chess Budding, or however you pronounce his name, his parents were literally communist cop killers who ruined San Francisco and caused an enormous crime wave that we all suffered from, is getting recycled back into academia and into Berkeley with flattering coverage and media. How the fuck does that happen? That, that man should not be able to show his face in the Bay Area ever again, right? And yet, of course, that, that, that's how it works, right? And I think part of why Elon pissed off everybody by Twitter, it's the first time that somebody outside of that little academia, government, media sort of cycle captured what was perceived to be an elite institution and made it something else. Right. The reality is that, you know, we're not living actually in a fascist dictatorship. You know, Ben Shapiro can do whatever he wants on Daily Wire or all these other weird little social networks that I never go on that I hear about that are truth and gab and all that stuff. Right. This is the first time that it's it's it's, it's imagine that Harvard got taken over by the editorial board at the National Review. Right. That from from the elite perspective, that's what happened. Right. And holy shit. But that's that's a tiny little exception to the general rule.
right? And that that's and and tech lives outside of that that elite sort of media cycle in some sense, or at least the, the Elons and the David Sachs of the world do. And that's why they don't succeed, right? But it's part of the question of like, how is it that every elite institution basically has the exact same tiny little set of values? Because that, that's not the way America used to be, right? There used to be conservative professors at Harvard Law School. There isn't anymore other than I guess Dershowitz, and that's about it. So that, that's that's part of it, right? I think that's part of the question too, is do we try to reform the institutions or just build new ones or build a parallel universe elsewhere? It kind of leads towards the latter because it just seems really hard to recover the former. Elon, Elon just bought Twitter, right? Yeah. He didn't build it. And so, but, 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 but he, bought, he bought Twitter and tech is somewhat disruptive, but you can't buy, I mean, he could buy the New York Times, but you can't create a New York Times overnight. New York Times is what it is because there's hundred years of it existing as the sort of and premature of what is considered elite thought in America. You can't create that overnight, right? It's but but Sub Substack is, is probably the better example of building a competing universe, right? And it's a decentralized version. Yeah, it's a centralized company, but it's a bunch of individual newsletters where you have Matty Iglesias, Noah, Noah Smith, and Richard Hanania and Curtis Yarvin all on the same platform. Upstream of stuff that's happening on Twitter, upstream of stuff that's in the New York Times. I would say there's also, there's a lot of... Tradition, traditional names or whatever on Substack as well. One of the most shocking things for me when I started working at Substack was that, like, realizing that there were all these names of writers that were coming on the platform, and I just never heard of any of them. And they had huge audiences on Twitter, and I was just and huge newsletter lists. And I was just, like, it, it was my first moment. Honestly, where I was just, oh, all I know is the tech ecosystem where I think these names are big because whatever. And it turns out there are people five times their audience that none of us have ever heard of. And so, yeah, I mean, Substack is a home for a lot of different types of writers. And yes, it gives a home to maybe writers that feel a little bit more emblematic of that emergent worldview. But then there's also plenty of people on there that are kind of, I don't, I, it's it's still sort of neutral in that way, or it wants to be neutral. But, but I think that there's a brand association with it. To say you're doing a Substack versus I have a newsletter, newsletter makes it sound kooky, Substack makes it seem legit. Even though it's, it's just a little bit of veneer over the same email software effect. And that's 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 minimizing all the feature work. Substack guides stuff. a lot of intellectual culture, but does it really guide any sort of politics cult or you know policy? Is it really Twitter? It feels is still very influential, and it's where the people who make decisions go every day. Where Substack feels kind of but I abstract. think I think Substack is upstream of Twitter, right? In it's, yeah. it's, it informs them. Yes. When, when when David Sachs is on all in talking about a piece that Mike Solana writes on Substack, that's upstream of all the stuff that comes downstream of all in, which includes Elon. And so, you know, and, and David Sachs is launching Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign. That, that means Mike Solana's Substack posts are filtering into the actual political arena. Now, whether or not it manifests in any amount of power, that's to be seen. But I don't know. I, the power of the pen is pretty powerful with Substack and, and a combination of the distribution on Twitter. But just one, one comment on that, though. The right, I mean, you're right that the numbers are there, right? If you look at Tucker Carlson's numbers plus Ben Shapiro, is two orders of magnitude higher than anybody on CNN. Like if you actually, when Tucker got kicked off of Fox News, which is the only reason anybody ever watched Fox News, right? You actually compared his, or even just the number of video views on his announcement video on Twitter versus was more than the views of all of CNN for a month or something. It was just an insane mismatch between, but, but we're talking about elite versus populist culture, right? And we live in a democracy. So in theory, populism should translate into political power eventually, but we really don't live in a democracy, right? So it kind of doesn't in a way. And that, that's, that's my question about, yeah, yes, I mean, Mike Solana and the All In Podcast and, and us, of course, are upstream of all mainstream media, but on the ground at the Harvard Admissions Committee, 
or whoever the hell hired Boudin at, at Berkeley, it kind of doesn't matter, right? <laughs> it's obviously not impacting that. that it hasn't caused a shakeup in American academia or much of the political process in these days, right? I think the dichotomy you just made, elite versus populist culture, is more descriptive than institutionalist versus anti-institutionalist or Davos versus startup man. I, I, I disagree mm. a lot with the institutionalist, anti-institutionalist, but let me explain. First, let, let me sh- say where I agree. I agree that tech sucks at telling its story. I agree that tech sucks at doing public arts projects I, or culture projects. It, it did, you know, Andreessen put his name on hospitals, so they, they do, you know, they do some stuff. stuff. I also I agree that tech sucks at getting involved in politics. I think one of the reasons why it sucks is because it gets destroyed when it does. It it's, brings a knife to a gunfight and this infrastructure has to be built over time. And you know, on the media side, you know, Mike Solano with Pirate Wires, it could have been done a decade ago, but now we finally have defense media. So those are some agreements. Where I disagree is, I don't think the people that we're naming as anti-institutionalists, i.e. Mark Dreesen, Elon Musk, or, you know, Peter Thiel, or whoever's on the sort of non-institutional side, I don't think that they're, I think that they have a problem with the specific institutions or the specific people running the institutions. And if those institutions were replaced with more populist culture, i.e. if people they trusted, they would believe in those institutions. And Twitter is so fascinating as an example, because people gave, you know, the, the left might as well have seen or, you know, or institutionalists saw Twitter as an institution before, you know, Vijaya, all the people running it, the trusted safety team that had institutional credibility. We have to trust blue checks, right? Institutions, you know, blue checks matter. And now that those people are not running it, it's been replaced, then they don't trust those institutions anymore. In fact, it's, it's a slur to have a blue check. Similarly, if the CDC was replaced with Bology and, you know, other people or FDA or whatever, those same people trust the institutions, they wouldn't trust it anymore. And so it's not the fact that, hey, do you trust institutions, not trust institutions. It's are those people woke or based? <laughs> Nadia, you're not interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. And so that is the most descriptive def- de- description of what is the actual difference, the substantive difference. It's these cultural values you said. It's not professional class versus, versus the whatever, the entrepreneurial class, because we see founders, peers, you know, Reid Hoffman, Mark Benioff, and Peter Thiel, you know, Mark Jason, with different values. They're the same, you know, status in terms of founders, and yet they have different cultural values. So it's not just the employee class versus founder class. It's a, it's a set of morals that, that they differ on. And w- what is politics? It's morals. What, what, what is the culture war? It's, it's morals. It, it's, it's, and so feel free to, di- where do you disagree with what I said? Well, the, the populism, the populism part is just AOC is a populist. So I actually don't, don't think of AOC and David Sachs as on the same spectrum. I well, yeah, she's a woke populist. Right. But the whole point is that's a, that's a means to power, not a, not a, orientation in terms of institutionalist versus anti-institutionalist. David Sachs is an anti-institutionalist populist. AOC yeah. would be an institutionalist populist. I agree. I agree. So woke first based, I'm saying my claim is that's the most descriptive distinction between these people. But but those words don't mean anything. No. Oh, okay. Well, I could define it. That, uh, a belief in hierarchy versus a belief in equality. Liberty versus equity. No, I think it goes deeper. I think there's actual, one thing we've been touching on, I think there are political differences here as well. I mean, all, everything we're saying is true. Obviously. But Peter Thiel is very clearly right of center by any, yeah. by any Okay, so left, left, left versus right. right. By first base, I mean left versus right. Sure. Okay. Is, is, well, so I, I cut Nadia off that. before. No, I, there's so much I disagree with that I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, but, <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you don't want to get dragged in, but no. like. No, it's not that I don't want to get dragged in. I just think it's the wrong, con- I genuinely think it's the wrong conversation to affect the change that we want to have. If I thought it was the right conversation, I would be all in. I just think well, like, there's a difference between just trying to understand. And then there's difference. So I agree, understanding what's actually happening and then trying to affect the change are different things. But first, let's, I'm, I'm just trying to understand what is actually happening. What is the substantive difference? 
and that, that's my claim. My claim is not that we should make everything about workforce space. My claim is that that is just descriptive of, of, of or left versus right, but that is what the actual fight is about. One thing we haven't talked about on here yet is, so whenever I think about tech values trying to encode themselves in public institutions, I always think about Institute for Progress, which does not exist in this woke-based universe or anything like that. But I'm really impressed with the stuff that they're doing because they're, you know, they're a think tank out there on the Hill talking to DC policymakers and trying to get shit built in this country. And that's impressive to me. And and I think I want I want to be able to tell more stories that and that that has nothing to do with politics, but it's just sort of this is a this is a worldview that is in an emergent worldview that is in conflict with this declining worldview. And they are tr- doing what they can to push that worldview forward. And I think that is what is missing from the I, I know we've talked a lot about Elon or Davis Sachs or whatever just because they're convenient reference points, I guess, as these sort of like prominent figures. But I think the common feeling among a lot of them is I just I don't really know what they want. You know, I don't I get that David Sachs really doesn't like the way things are right now. But what does he want in exchange? And I'm he just wants not what we have right now, I guess. And so I think like what is missing, at least for me in these narratives, is some sort of agenda or vision or something for people to aspire to and get excited about. Because I think a lot of people are feeling sort of disengaged or jaded from seeing how this clash between these two worldviews is kind of devolving into just like pure culture politics stuff because it's like, well, I thought you guys were going to push something better forward than said you're just well, they did, like, right? Or deal, push Trump and, and Trump yeah, won. Yeah, and, and, completely outside of that spectrum, right? In a good way, well, I mean. Is Sachs is pushing to Sanders? Like, I feel like you're, you're, yeah. uh, you're yeah. implying Sachs is not clear about what he wants, but it feels like he talks every week about what he wants, right? And he has a candidate that represents his values. W- w- what am I missing? Yeah, that's fair. I think it, maybe that has started changing out with the Sanders stuff. That's a start. I think that doesn't necessarily, I don't know, I feel like this is an answer to what, this, what does the good life look if you succeed in 20 years? I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm being too hard on it, but I don't feel, I haven't heard something that makes me feel deeply inspired. And maybe that just comes down to differences in personal views. I don't know. My, my sense is, I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but he's a traditional small government Republican at a, with the one tweak as he's you know, anti-foreign intervention, right? So very much against establishment, neocon, Republican, Wall Street Journal op-ed page, which which actually advocates for us to be engaging our world stage. Sachs would be happy being isolationist. I think that, you know, his Ukraine stuff, and then he's just like, get out of my way, government, strong constitutional, I mean, he's a, he's a lawyer by training, low taxes. Yeah, that, that seems to fit mostly where his worldview is. But I don't think that to your point that that's incredibly inspiring for yeah, it's like we're in the yeah. Right. So that that's that's the challenge. And I think that Teal is I think Teal is interesting because he was willing to be contrarian earlier publicly about a lot of this stuff. And I think but I don't think he he offers a cohesive vision that the average American is gonna get excited about. That said, I mean he got he got Trump, you know, or helped nudge Trump into office. And JD Vance, I, I think, is that as a teal kind of appointed to to run for office. Blake Masters didn't work out. But I don't know. I I still think that there's a version of this that is competent startup exec, Elon type, with less eccentric, less eccentric, less chaotic from a public standpoint, and kind of just can win over a, a larger group of people in the center. Um, because they're willing to avoid a bunch of the culture war issues. But I don't know, I, you can't win a Republican primary if you're not willing to 
have extreme beliefs about abortion or, or whatever the kind of pillar issues in Iowa and New Hampshire and all that kind of stuff. So New Hampshire is a little less radical. Yeah, I was about to say, it's all great, the Institute for Progress or this or that, but at some point you will be asked your views on abortion, trans this and that, Ukraine, whatever the, the half dozen polarizing sort of binarizing issues are of the day, and you have to take a position on it. And the reality is there's a certain elite set of answers to those questions, there's a certain non-elite answer to those questions. And most institutions will go the mainstream way, right? Part of it also is that, that tech can afford, everyone we're talking about is like a billionaire who's post-economic who doesn't give a shit about their view, right? They live in their own world, right? Their own economy. All the people that we're naming are in the center of an entire economy that revolves around them so they can get away with saying these things, right? But I don't think most politicians or people could publicly. None of these techies are actually going to run for office, right? Because the American political process is such an utter and complete circus. What was interesting about J.D. Vance, right, is that he and, and Blake Masters is, and, and DeSantis, to a certain point of view, is that, and that, that they turned their back on the elite establishment, right? J.D. Vance, I mean, sure, he came from, you know, hillbilly elegy, et cetera, but he, he actually wasn't from that family. He went to, I believe, was Harvard and Yale, right? And he could have lived inside that world. Blake Masters went to Stanford. DeSantis, I believe, went to, was it Harvard Law School? They, you know, these aren't people who were actually raised in a trailer park outside of Reno, right? They, they were actually safely inside the elite establishment, and they rebelled against it, right? Which, if you actually look at most historical revolutions, it's insider elites who, re who revolt against the system and try to create something new. That's that's the only case. There. There's never been a populist leader. Fidel Castro is one of the wealthiest families in Cuba. Che Guevara was, et cetera. So, but well, I think so. In the case of JD, he, you know, from a lower socioeconomic, but then kind of worked his way through actually the military into, you know, Yale Law School. DeSantis is from Tampa, but then it was, I think, he was captain of the baseball team at Yale and then went to Harvard Law School. So. It's the classic, you come from whatever background and then you're trying to kind of launder yourself into the elite through the institutions. And then you reject it because populism is the path to power, not not because you actually don't want to go to the fancy dinner parties behind the scenes. Is it? I don't know. That might be a little bit too cynical. I, I think some part of that, I, I agree with you. Everyone, and this is what's great about American social mobility, right? You, you come from a little whatever outside of Tampa, you go to the, the Ivy League school, you get the total New York Times software download and you come out a great little elite Protestant. I don't care what your religion was. If you graduated from Harvard, you're a Protestant. And off you go into the world and you've got your little set of beliefs. And somehow they actually managed to somehow avoid the brain implant and actually revolt against it. And I, I don't know. I have to think that maybe it's a totally cynical move. It depends. And also it's a question of how much they can pull off that populist touch, right? I think J.D. Vance can totally pull it off and actually win an election. I think it was a, a much bigger struggle for Blake Masters to actually prove that in fact he's an everyday Arizonan. Dan Antonio, t tell me, what, I know not he disagrees because you mentioned it. What, why do you disagree with the claim that left versus right is actually the most precise uh, claim, uh, description of the actual differentiator between these groups. Oh, no, I think left and right is part of it. But I think the institutional anti-institutional thing is definitely part of it as well. I mean, I don't know. I, left, left and right, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to tell what that even means anymore in the United States, right? So I guess, tell me why Elon is an anti-institutionalist. He bought Twitter. He didn't, he didn't start it. He, if he had his people in government, he'd support the government. And who are his people? They're not anti-institutionalists. Peter Thiel works for the government. Palantir, Andrew, they work for the government. Well, hold on, hold on. Okay, jump. jump. Elon, Elon is definitely anti-institutionalist. I mean, he's, he's, he, he t took out NASA, basically. Like, NASA is, is just basically a funding source for SpaceX now, right? He took out the, the, the car industry. So, which I, was Mark Benioff started Salesforce and Reid Hoffman started like Yeah, and then, and then Mark Benioff bought Time Magazine, which is a shell of itself because he wanted to launder his reputation with the, with the elite establishment, the Davos establishment. Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. Elon bought Twitter to own the lips. That, that's clear. 
right? Coded in free speech, but it's, it's, he didn't, the, the direction it was headed, they got rid of the Babylon Bee and then he decided to do a $44 billion spite store, right? To, yeah. I think it's really just, it's tribal. It's more, I want my people running the institution. Um, you know, Balaji is anti-institutional. He wants to start new countries. He wants to start new cities. You can't retake these things. But Elon just took over, took over Twitter. I, I don't know. It just, it's not. But, but hold on. Twitter, Twitter as an institution is kind of, it's, it's, it's a software product, right? The distribution on Twitter happens as a result of algorithms and, and servers, which when you fire that many people, the, the spaces don't necessarily work and you gotta, you gotta scale that back up. But the reality is everyone said that that's Twitter was two weeks away from going down when he started firing all the people. Last time I checked, Twitter works fine. Yeah, there's some glitches with spaces, but for the most part, the thing works. So actually he didn't really buy an institution. He got rid of a bunch of the, the institution and the thing works. If you go to Harvard and you fire all the people who are at Harvard and you keep the buildings, Harvard doesn't, there is no value to Harvard. So that to me is an institution. An institution is a, is a group of people, processes and history and, and a prestige and, and you know, brand that people are willing to associate. And if you actually just rip everything out, then there's no value. So Twitter, Twitter itself is, he, he's proven it. It's the existing install base of the phone, the app that it actually distributes, the, the habits that people are using it. It's for the most part, you know, it's just a strictly a, a piece of raw, raw materials, basically. He can do whatever he wants. Institutional versus anti it's, it's I don't know what the better term is, but it's a little bit of an oversimplification. Twitter is an institution in the sense that it is a large organization that's been around for a while. But what does Twitter do versus what a Harvard does? Harvard lends out its brand name to everyone and everything. And I feel, you know, you have a Harvard professor, right? But then you don't have Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. I don't know. If someone is popular on Twitter, then they're popular for who they are. They're popular through Twitter, but they kind of have a standalone reputation where if that person then moved to somewhere else, they, they wouldn't lose that brand, brand name. So to me, it's, it platforms individuals. Even if it, even if the platform itself is an organization, I, I grant you the difference, the structural difference between Twitter and Washington Post and Harvard. I, I, I grant you that difference. Now tell me the difference between Bill Gates and Sam Altman, or for Sam Altman versus Elon. They started tech companies. They run tech, tech companies. They they find Sam Altman especially finding great startup talent. Ran Y Combinator, the startup mindset, you know, incubator. And yet, I think you'd put him more in the in the in the Davos camp or more in the institutionalist camp with how he's acting right now. T tell me the differences. Because he's happy to keep keep funding the people who are running California into the ground for, for social status. He, he's willing to support the Democratic Party in California. Okay, so I, I guess what I'm trying to claim is left versus right is a more descriptive thing of what's happening than institutional. But, but in California, the institution of government is just the Democratic Party. Of I feel like you just don't want to say left versus right. <laughs> I, I feel like that's, it's, it's just so obvious. No, but a Republican, Republican establishment that is supporting Ukraine, to me, that's just a, a slight variation. The Curtis frame of it's 20 years behind wherever the liberals were 20 years ago. I think most people in the Senate, they're, they're pretty much the same. They just have a slightly coded different set of beliefs that they use to get elected. But for the most part, it's, it's not that different. Can I, make a, can I make a depressing comment? So I, I think part of the problem here with the techies Aside from the fact that they're not really, I think, ideal for creating new institutions that appeal to people who aren't in tech. But broadly speaking, I think it's hard to, it's hard to be an anti-institutionalist when humanity can't create institutions anymore. The only organizing principles or organization society that's being founded and maintained and seems healthy is corporations. Let's be blunt, right? I think I've been pretty public. I published this thing in Tablet about my conversion, religion, Judaism, et cetera. He's network state idea, which I actually quite, is, is what it is, but no one actually believes it. He, you know, he tweeted, oh, the network state Zionism without Judaism. 
Well, there, there is no Zionism without Judaism. That, that it's nothing. It's, 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 it's a Twitter account is what it is, right? And I think it's, it's very difficult to actually create other organizations, an alternative government or some, some alternative to the New York Times. If I think society has stopped being able to do that. And we're in a sort of fragmentation and decentralization mode rather than in a unification mode. And frankly, we're just coasting on the institutions that were built over the course of the past century or two centuries. And there's nothing new over the hill. And techies can do all the startups and companies they want, which I think is great. I mean, obviously, I'm involved with it myself, but it's very different than providing what is the global good? <laughs> to what ends should we all be striving? Technology is not going to answer that question. Unless you make a cult out of it, I think the AI people or the VA people have, and maybe they've got a career version out of it. But I, I don't really feel there's cultural, religious, political dynamism in terms of like, what is the next thing? Do you think it's possible? I agree with you. Do you think it's possible to get out of that somehow? No, like, I, if I not, think... What's their future? I, I mean, to get back to the other, <laughs> we're just talking about tablet pieces today, right? Not his tablet piece, my tablet piece. As I say, my tablet piece, no, I, I think secular modernity kind of gets to a dead end. And you can see it in the birth rates. You can see it in the general feelings of despair. You can see it in the increasingly feckless institute. Every institution outside of corporations basically doesn't work particularly well anymore. No, I, I think there isn't an exit, actually. That is a depressing statement. I mean, I think it's not the end of the world. I think it's just going to be slow decay and senescence and, 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 and decadence for a long time. Slow, slow, slow end of the world, for sure. Yeah, I do think this is like a difference between, like, even when we talk about elites, there's, in my mind, there's like these two strains. One is historically, it's kind of like aristocratic elites versus what I call the meritocratic elites or the self-made elite generations that has only been a thing since like the Industrial Revolution. And I think people harken back to sort of this notion of elites embracing their role as, as public stewards or leaders and sort of historically they were just so much better at sort of taking their wealth and power and then parlaying it into sort of the greater good, whatever that means. I think that is a distinctly like aristocratic elite notion that they're actually much better at than sort of the more self-made wealth generations because it is just too easy without that sort of, I think those expectations get passed down through generations of families and, and you grow up understanding that this is what you're supposed to be doing because you were born into it, right? And like, I don't want to advocate for going back to that version of the world, but I do think it is a real disadvantage of sort of a self-made wealth kind of system that we have now, where it's, you can just make a lot of money and then kind of live your life and there isn't as much of an expectation. And I think in particular with the more recent generations of these sort of big wealth booms that we've had, because more people have made money from startups, like in terms of like number of people that benefited from that, that particular moment in time, more people benefit from that than from the industrial revolution or whatever. And, and so there's this sort of mentality, this bystander effect thing that happens where it's kind of, well, yeah, I have these resources, but my friend has 10x or 100x or 1000x the resources I do. So it's not really my job. And then you kind of just get people kind of milling about and not doing anything. Um, and so I think it is very possible that, yeah, maybe Antonio's version of the world comes best because it's just sort of, well, it could just be that there's no deeper meaning to this. People just sort of become powerful and they have a, a different view on the world. But if they're not able to kind of connect the dots and make the leap into public stewardship or leadership, then, then you just kind of die and someone else takes over. Like, you know? I, I feel so just, at least in the American system of self-made and aristocratic, we've had successive generations of basically status laundering where you make the money and then you donate enough stuff whether it's Rockefeller or Carnegie or the Sackler family, you can turn yourself into whatever kind of lower status group and get yourself into the elite by building those institutions and, and the centers of power, particularly in New York, but even you know in, in LA or, or San Francisco, there's still plenty of buildings with 
or museums with people's name on it, right? Eli Broad, what, what did he do? Mortgages or, or building houses? And he built a, a, a meaningful culture center, Getty, same thing, it's just oil. So I think, I, I think what, what's challenging though is the change in, there is not any civil society, I think, in any of these places. It's so globalist and atomized where it's, you're some tech billionaire, who made money in San Francisco, you probably go buy some house in Beverly Hills or Bel Air and you're flying down there and then you're hanging out with people on some yacht in the, you know, the Mediterranean. You're not actually building any part of the civil society. You're not part of any, the, the city that you're in wanting to go to the social season and none of that exists, right? Everyone's hyper-focused on how they can optimize their kids' homeschooled education and whatever. There, there is actually no cohesive community in any of these places. Yeah, it is where, where where are you where are you calling in from, Dan? Out of curiosity, <laughs> joking, joking. <laughs> but no, I, I think that the, the major source of conflict in our society is the conflict between the equality that liter- liberal democracy promises and the extreme inequality that techno capitalism actually provides. That's the actual difference, right? And not to go all commie for a second, but the massive wealth inequality that exists is definitely part of it, right? And the fact that elites <laughs> feel no obligation to give back whatsoever is definitely part of that. Yeah, I, like, I think like I'm a very happy capitalist. Like I think like inequality can be okay if there is sort of this, I don't know where that obligation derives from, but there's some unspoken social contract that if you are a beneficiary of that, then whatever you do should theoretically help a, the, everyone else then pull themselves up by the bootstraps and do the same thing or provide sort of basic services. And that's what every generation has done until the tech rate. And so I'm just, I don't know. Which is a lack of whether you want to say religion or this idea that there, who are you playing for status with? It's actually, you're playing for status on a global scale with Twitter rather than in whatever local community that you're in, right? A hundred years ago, if you were in Cincinnati, the the world that you actually cared about was the the social scene in Cincinnati of the other wealthy families in Cincinnati. And and now it's, you're wealthy anywhere. What you care about is your, your, the size of your Twitter following or Instagram or what people in all of these coastal cities or globalist cities around the world, think of whatever you're doing. And so this, that, that kind of flattened world, I think, reduces the, to your point, it's this almost, well, someone else is going to do this. I don't have to do this. And if I do it, I'm not going to be able to do it at the scale of all of these super wealthy people. So therefore, I just don't do it at all. I was going to say, even in Carnegie and Rockefeller's day, they did a lot for the South which they technically didn't have to do. But I guess you could argue that North versus South was still maybe less salient. It still felt like it was part of their their context. And, and then, yeah, I, I do think you're right. The, the the landscape or the stage has just greatly expanded regardless since since then. And like maybe it started to fall apart in sort of the Davos era where their whole agenda was globalist because they were playing on the global stage. And so they're kind of almost this weird hybrid of the past and then maybe what we have now where it's, no, we are still very pro-socially focused, but we're pro-socially focused on the global stage instead of the local stage. And then the maybe tech tech being the next iteration of that where they're kind of like, eh, we're on the global stage and we just don't really care or something. I don't know. Bill Gates basically said, okay, I'm the richest guy. I'm, I'm stepping back from Microsoft. I don't want to deal with the DOJ. And I'm going to just solve malaria. I'm going to solve polio. And, and admirable that he's made such progress there. But I think... Other people look at that and go, okay, I, I'm going to dream bigger. I, I, I don't care about being the, the most lauded person in Cincinnati or, or, or San Francisco. I, I want to be considered the, the person that they you know, celebrate at Davos or, or Art Basel or whatever the, the little circuit that all these, these mega wealthy people 
you know, travel on. And, and that, that's, that's, that's the game. And so until that elite game changes, I think you're going to be stuck with this. That Rockefeller was very religion driven. And so even if he extended beyond his, his own geography, it came from, I think, that sort of drive. And yeah, we don't have that today. So, no. What, what is the, the event that people who are really wealthy and powerful, what event do they all want to go to? It's a very clear answer in my view, because you can't, you can't buy your way in. You have to be invited. MOZ podcast? What? No. Sun no? Valley. Sun Valley. Sun Valley is, if you get invited to Sun Valley and you get the stupid paparazzi photo or whatever, that is the ultimate status symbol of you are a somebody. And it's a mix of media plus tech. And it, it's, it's a tightly controlled thing. Davos, you can just show up, right? And there are plenty of parties. Sun Valley, you have to be invited. And, and at a certain point, Ted, Ted had this, this you know, cachet. And I think that they've expanded it into a big business now. But those are the things, right? So if, if some tech billionaire is running a conference now, which these, these things happen and, and you know, we, we know of people who go to them or whatever, it's okay. Like th there are these niche, really high-end events. I mean, they just did one, Vitalik just did one, which I wouldn't say is a billionaire thing. It, it's just a Zuzalu thing where it's the, the city that they sprung up for two months in Montenegro and all these fancy kind of crypto elite effectively showed up, but, but longevity people and all that other kind of stuff. That that's the game, and so people don't care about. Oh, did you build a new art museum in San Francisco? That's did you get invited to Suzalu? Is actually what what the cachet and, and status is. But then lowering the bar then even further. It's okay, don't if they are playing on just as global of a stage as Dallas, then why are they not? Why not use use those those events to do something interesting? I don't know. Dallas still managed to have some sort of impact, even. Yeah, while well, having this sort of more global view, why is tech not doing anything? Well, I think they've just been absorbed by it, right? Like, I, I think tech people do go to the, the tech executives do go to Davos. If you're this, yeah, an SVP, EVP at Google, you're going to Davos. Yeah, certain ones do. I'm just yeah. saying that I feel that generation was able to still, yeah, you have Gates Foundation, which, you know, was it the thing they should have done most or not or whatever, but like, I would say, fully revive the field of malaria research. And that's a good thing, ultimately. And yeah, what what is, they didn't let the sort of globalist lens versus local lens. Okay, maybe you're not reviving San Francisco, but then why not do something, anything? I, I think it's partially psychological. From the people that I've met who are in that disruptive builder class, I mean, I don't know Elon at all, but Zuck and some of the other people in that, in that rung, and having met some of the people who put on some of these conferences, not that I go to them regularly, but I recently went to a crypto conference, Dan, in your neck of the woods, that was kind of, was one of these douchey finance crypto things. And, you know, it's all very nice, but I met the guy who organizes it. That guy... And the Zuck, Elon, whatever psychologies are just completely different, right? One guy sits there in glad hands and interconnects and puts on and respects everyone's whatever. That dude is never going to tweet a viral anything, just to be blunt, right? Meanwhile, the other dude absolutely will. And we'll just start a complete fire and we'll just act a bull in the China shop. It's, it's, it's partially psychological. And I, I just don't see one pretending or being the other. I, I don't see Elon putting on the, the alt equivalent of, of Sun Valley or whatever. Even though he probably could. I mean, he certainly has resources and he probably has this way to pull it off, but he, he's just, he's just not. Right. So really, it's just weird and eccentric to ever be, <laughs> ever do anything serious. Is that kind of the, the thing? I think there's, it, how I've reconciled myself to tech is that there's certain weird beliefs and delusions they have to have to make tech successful, which is why Silicon Valley and other examples of it exist in the world and why it's so hard to reproduce. And one of them is that inability to 
yeah, to, to create these, I don't know, maybe I'm deluding myself because I you guys create, create what exactly? High status stuff. What, what, what tech thing do, do we associate with high status? There is nothing tech high status. Yeah, that's a clear alternative to going to an Ivy League school. Yeah, okay. it's, it's basically having a big audience on social media is the closest thing you could say to high status, right? It's not even like you can have a better iPhone. Right? You, you can just go buy the same iPhone. It's the, the Andy Warhol quote about Coca-Cola, right? It's Liz Taylor and the president drink Coke, and so do you, and, and the iPhone is the same. AI is actually an interesting one. I, I've, for the first time in a really long time, I've, I've seen people being like, I have access to chat, chat GPT-4. That was something that people were saying last fall. And it was, oh shit, that, that's cool. You're, you're ahead of the game. But overall, there's not much status. It's like, as soon as a product is launched in technology, it's immediately, it's how, how many people can we get it to as soon as possible, right? Growth. And so... Who are the highest status people in the world? Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. Who are the most important people? I don't even know what no, to talk about. No, absolutely not. I think it's, it's Barack Obama is, is one of the highest status people in the world. I think celebrities in terms of, you know, actors, those, those types of people, because they, they fit the, the broadest swath of people. Eric, I think name, Elon, name? Elon is actually pretty popular. Right. I would I mean, say that relative to the world. I don't think well, Bezos is mm, very popular. Eric, name, name a tech event that the editor-in-chief of the New York Times shows up to. There isn't one. Who, who, who cares? Or, well, okay, well, you can say that, but it kind of does matter, right? But, but yeah. Same yeah. Same yeah. Look, uh, okay. Karis, what's your tech event they might go to? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Hereticon. <laughs> the... I agree that tech should create more, you know, a tech New York Times or tech tech you know, media that that that's what we're trying to do here. I agree that tech people should have, you know, a Harvard competitor. Turns out these are regulated industry or at least in academia, it's pretty hard to do. So I agree that they should do more of that. But I, I feel, you know, I mean, who are the biggest donors to the DNC? It's Reid Hoffman and SBF, right? Tech people donate a massive amount to, to politics. They just donate right because they're they're trying to launder their money for status. It's 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 basic. So so. There is nothing preventing regulatory-wise you from starting a competitor to Harvard. What's, com you know, it's pretty hard. The, yeah, it's I'm 400 so years of history and brand and the fact that X number of presidents have gone there. And it's, you just, it's, it's not a money or regulatory thing. It's, 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 it's a regulatory thing. No, it isn't. It's, it, it's no, it absolutely not. It doesn't have to be literally starting another universe. I mean, that's like, the, yeah, the Joe Lonsdale version of this is, is trying to do that. And I think that's worth trying yeah, run that playbook, but maybe that's something else that is not even what we've thought of, right? And and I don't know what that is, but being sort of maybe one step in that direction where it was kind of, oh, it is actually saying you're a Teal Fellow in tech world is kind of saying you went to XYZ school. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, but it also means you didn't go to school, right? So how do you create more things like that that are maybe take that one step further where people can get? And, and then again, what is the point of it, right? It's, I think the more people should have access to those kinds of educations without, uh, without having to pay $80,000 a year. That seems good for the world. So how do you, but I don't, I don't think it's, yeah, I don't think it, you have to go through the front door in order to, to enact that kind of change either. The Teal Fellowship is, is the most successful high status thing. And then YC, I think YC has diluted it a bit in the sense that they, they have more people overall YC and, and Teal, but that doesn't have to take the random person in Chicago or the random person in Miami. They, they've heard of the New York times and Harvard and they haven't heard of YC or or the Teal Fellowship. It's not enough, but it, it was, it's a blueprint for what could be maybe another iteration yes. of something. I agree. Also, I, I totally if you look agree. at the schooling background, a lot of the Teal Fellows, I suspect it would heavily index to elite schools. And in fact, recently I was having a beer with somebody from the Tealiverse, and he basically got his job. Peter basically asked him what school he went to, and he mentioned elite school, and that was basically the end of the interview. He said yes, and that was that. So, I mean, it, it, I mean yes, it's sort of disruptive, but 
I don't see a lot of people from Boise State University working in those worlds, right? That's also the reality. What is the set of institutions that if you're an institutionalist, you trust no matter who's running it? Government is monolithic, but I, 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 I would have said the U.S. military, but I think that maybe has come down a notch in, in New York Times, Harvard, CDC. Yeah. But then what is an institutionalist? If there's no institution that they trust, no matter what. Wait, wait, oh, are you saying the institutionalist? Yes, the institution. Oh, I thought you were asking me which ones I trust. No, 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 I'm saying the institutionalist. Oh, they think all of them. I think everything in the federal government is, is completely fine. It's like but, an expert, you should say. But when expert. Trump wins, it's, here's, here's my final point on institutions. It's a tautology. Basically, as soon as an Elon or Balaji or Trump person is running that institution, it's not an institution anymore. They don't no, exist. Because they hate it because it is disrupting their beloved institution. They per they perceive that Trump, for example, does not play by the rules. Therefore, Trump is clearly not an institutionalist. And now we have a bull in the china shop who is destroying the institution. But it, it's not about the it's it's about the values that the institution. What's the difference between so Elon thinks the same thing about the CD? They're not playing by his by competence. They're, they're not competent, and that's why he thinks they're bad. He thinks they'd be good. I mean, if they were good, the institution would be good. He doesn't think that the institution shouldn't exist or something. Didn't didn't Michael Lewis write a whole book on this that no one read? Because, okay, who cares? He wrote a book on how the government was resisting Trump and how the loyal bureaucrats were the were the ones that actually were resisting and the deep state and all this kind of stuff. If anything, Trump showed how powerful the institutions were. Nothing, nothing changed. He wasn't but people didn't anything. respect the institution and say it's resist. I'm, I'm saying people who support institutions. Well, but he's also, but he's, but he's incompetent. Values. He was incompetent. Yeah. I mean, that's the hope of, that's the hope of DeSantis. DeSantis, that, that's why DeSantis is both more promising and more threatening, depending on how you look at it, right? Trump was kind of a buffoon, but DeSantis has, for example, completely changed the way the University of Florida works, right? He just, he, and, and this is why the new right loves him. Because again, the new right is not about, you know, you know, small government, low taxes, the Chamber of Commerce guy. It's like, no, 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 we're going to use the instruments of the state to advance. So he's institutionalist, right? DeSantis no. is in a way. I think, well, yes, he is. Yeah. Dude, your, your definition of anti-institutionalist yeah. is wrong in my opinion. Are you kidding? He, he, he literally talks about the administrative state. He is downstream of Curtis. He is ready to go and civil service reform. He's going to take executive branch and redefine it. Yeah, he, he's going to run the institution and he's, he's going he's gonna to reshape it in, in the same way Elon is. I feel you're trying to have it both ways where you're saying that institutionalists, when other people take over their institutions, they're mad at how the institutions are run. And it's the same thing. It, it's really just who, whom, which, which tribe. It's not some specific how institutions work. Dan is interpreting institutionalism from a left perspective. DeSantis is, is right-wing institutionalism. Again, he's not destroying the University of Florida. He's just ripping out the DEI department. Well, I, I just, it's not about like literally, I like, institutions can or cannot exist. It's from where does one derive their authority? Do they derive their authority from being affiliated with the institution? Or are they a competent person who is using an institution towards their own means? I think that is the difference in mindset. It's for some people, it's because you went to Harvard, therefore you are competent. It's different from I am a competent person who happened to go to Harvard. And I think people being able to see that difference is a kind of where the is. Well said. I think, I think that's what I'm trying to say is if you go in and you take the existing institution and you rip out the heart, and you are basically saying there is no power derived from this institution. We are going to reform the institution and remake it in the way that will be less institutionalist, right? So reducing the scope, that I view as anti-institutionalist. It, it's you're approaching it from there broken, and I am going to replace them. And, and, and I think practically, and so this is where I think biology and a DeSantis are different. And obviously, biology has a wide set of beliefs. So I don't want to flatten it. 
But Balaji is approaching it from, I'm going to be not in the US and I'm going to kind of approach this from a, I, I want to re- rebuild from the ground up. Good, good for him that he has a, has a whole ideology built on that. I think there is a version of an anti-institutionalist that can say, okay, that's not practical, especially for the, the global superpower. What I want to do is I want to get charge and then actually use the maximum amount of power that I can to reform the institution, which Curtis would call, quote, American Caesar or FDR or whatever version you want. But every 80 years, we basically have had that in the US. And so that, to me, is the anti-institutionalist. It's, it's saying, blow up the entire system and, and reform it into the whatever the new version of, of the US is w- within the exact same system, right? We kept the constitution, but pre-FDR and post-FDR is a very different federal government. We can discuss Curtis on this podcast. Okay. I didn't realize that. Sorry. That's just sorry. sorry. <laughs> but hold on. As a comment on your thing though, it's 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 fun. Well, this is I, I guess there's a there's another distinction here. Because the first time this institutional anti-institutionalist distinction was was made clear to me was, and it's in a footnote in some Substack of mine, was when someone that we both know was booted out of the New York Times. You can probably start figuring out who it is. And as I, as I talked to them, her, her, them more, hey, them. I realized like, they didn't really object to the New York Times. They just wanted to be running it, right? Which is kind of They're a different vibe too, <laughs> right? They were institutionalists. They just didn't like management. And I think that mindset to me was different than, oh, Substack, just wreck the even notion of a newspaper. So I, I don't know, maybe there's two different terms required here. And that's what that... I agree. And that's why I think Teal, Andreessen, Elon, using your definitions, are not anti-institutionalists. They just want their people running the institution. They, they want better people with, with their values running the institutions. So, so Antonio brings up a good point, which I actually think is delineation. It is completely realistic to build a parallel set of new institutions, disruptive institutions or, or organizations or technologies or whatever, to compete with things that are not the government. When you are dealing with the government, they have, they have two monopolies that are, are pretty important. They have a monopoly over taxation and they have a monopoly over violence. And so outside of a bloody re- revolution, the only way to actually significantly reform them as an anti-institutionalist is to get elected, get your people in power, and then rip, rip the heart out from it. So that is a practical reality. So if you want to, on semantics, be, oh, well, you're taking over the institution, so therefore you're an institutionalist. No, it's, if you think that the entire administrative state is broken and you want to shut it down, the Stasi, that, that's anti-institutionalist, even if you are trying to run for office and, and go through the, the machinations of the American political process. Yeah, that's a good distinction. Most frustrating episode and moment of Zen history, I got to say. <laughs> Why? Because you were wrong? Because <laughs> <laughs> I stood wrong. up for myself and I got bullied. <laughs> okay, look at this. You, you spend one week in San Francisco and you become a commie. It's incredible. <laughs> must be something in the fucking water. It's, 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 it's insane. Uh, I'm going to keep sharpening my argument but listeners will agree it, it's a it's a red herring it, it's definitely red I'm put, <laughs> speaking of what's wrong with the american political spectrum the fact that the colors are flipped in the u.s is a major aggravation and somehow this all stems did you know that why the colors are flipped in the u.s from everything in the rest of the world right clearly the conservatives should be blue and not red do we know what we're talking about by the way in the rest of the world the left the commies are red and 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 the good i'm <clears throat> sorry the conservatives are blue in the united states it's flipped and it's you know what it comes from it was literally the fucking map at NBC in the 1980 Reagan race. I'm not even joking. That's when the colors flipped. And ever since then, it's been the reverse of the United States, or at least the text that I read that explained this. It's so bizarre. What have we not discussed in, in the last four minutes? And maybe we could put a bow on some of the stuff, but any last thoughts from any of you? Nadia, what's your next book about? Uh, hopefully something about this topic. 
I know you've got a book. I actually I had no idea if you had a book, but now with that smile of yours, you look a little guilty. I have to say, so there is a book in the picture, clearly. Now you're... There's, a little, there's a little something, bro. There's a little yeah. something. Can we speculate and then see if the reaction is? Yeah, we're getting some kind of link for project around that, around all this stuff we kind of talked about. I think there's room to tell that story on a kind of broader stage that reaches beyond just sort of tech conversations. But yeah, still hammering out the scope on that. Nadia, you're one of very few Silicon Valley public intellectuals. You're one of our best, and we should have more, right? Ideas really matter. And to your point, we, we all agree tech needs to have broader cultural power, not just, you know, sort of corporate power. And Antonio, you kind of dabbled in the public intellectual life or the writer life. Yeah. Why did you not pr pursue it? Were the prize, was the prize not big enough? Okay, I know where this question is, is going, Eric, but I'm going to totally change the script for a second because I don't have a question. And I, for I forgot to mention one thing. Nadia, we didn't discuss your GitHub piece, which is amazing. That came out in Wired Magazine, of all things. Just to plug Nadia's writing even more. I, I thought the GitHub piece was amazing. It it's great irony that it's in Wired, which is a shell of its former self. I'm literally a block away from it. And I used to write for them, too. So I, it's, it's another, another decayed institution. By the way, the editor-in-chief editor just literally left to go to political activism, which, I mean, frankly, he was doing it before. So this is really a cosmetic change. But, but in any case, your post, somehow your piece got through the wired editing process and you just talk about a certain, and it's funny because it's the GitHub office you're talking about, it's I assume the one on Brandon and 2nd Street, right? The one that you see with the GitHub logo still there. It's funny, it is literally a block away from where I'm, so I'm, I'm basically on South Park right now. And it was, I think, such an amazing snapshot in time of, from our perspective, Dan, the web two tech boom, right? When literally within 10 square blocks of here, the entire consumer internet was built from GitHub to Reddit to Twitter, to Stripe, to Square, to Uber, to everything. Everything was happening here. And there was a certain moment in time, I guess it's probably how the, the greatest generation talks about the post-World War II generation, in which everything was possible, everything was being built, everything was overfunded. It was this utopic age, and then these, these, these offices were spectacular, right? I don't, can you go into that a little bit more? I, I, I hate to just be reiterating your own writing when you have the writer sitting in front of us, but I, I think you captured a, something really well. Yeah, I, yeah, I thought I might appeal to your romantic connection of monuments and such. Yeah, it was about a GitHub office, which was opened. The latest one was open in 2013, um, which currently still exists, but has changed a lot. And then a few months ago, they announced that they were going to permanently shut down all their offices, as many companies are doing now. But I kind of use that as a moment to reflect on what that office meant during the 2010s and what it stood for. And sort of watching how it sort of decayed and now eventually shut down is itself sort of tracking this maybe decay in tech values or people being proud of them or standing for something. I find that office, well, I'm biased because I worked at that office for a few years, but I also think that office was particularly emblematic of this battle over tech values that we saw throughout the 2010s because they had a lot of, they had a lot of very just symbolism that was very, very pro-tech, pro-developers, and it was a very opulent office and it was very unapologetically opulent. And so the, the most iconic thing about this office was that when you first walk in, the lobby is a perfect replica of the president of the United States Oval Office. And so you are literally like, <laughs> some little, you know, GitHub player and touches and stuff, but you are literally standing in the Oval Office and walk in, um, which was just so fucking, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. But around the time I joined, they ended up dismantling and taking it down. And yes, part of it was like space issues. It, they did, they, they replaced it with a cafe and the cafe was actually great. You know, it was a great space to work and, and meet. It was much more functional, but I don't think we should evaluate monuments based on functionality. So one of the things I said in the, the piece is, like, you know, it's like we took down Disney World because like we just wanted to build condos there. Yes, you could use that space to build condos, but like it's Disney World, it stands for something, right? And I felt like having the Oval Office in this like tech 
office just stood for something. And so of, of the sort of GitHub-esque touches that were in office, they had a replica of the Oval Office rug. And instead of it, in, in the sort of model at the bottom, it said, in meritocracy, we trust. And this became a controversy in, I think, 2013, 2014, because, you know, in their mind, it's, it's a good thing. Who would not meritocracy? This is sort of a, the developer mindset, right, is what you build and what you can do is, is, is how you should be measured, not based on sort of titles or upbringing or whatever. And so it seemed very innocuous at the time, uh, but it became this sort of controversial thing where people were like, well, the meritocracy doesn't adequately reward all people. And they ended up having to like, take, down the, take down the rug and replace it with in collaboration we trust. And so it just became this very symbolic kind of thing. And that was that was what I wrote about. Of, you know, what if they had descended the rug and what if they had said meritocracy is good? It could have been this teaching moment. But I think the fact that it just sort of was like, yep, we're so sorry, we're going to change it. I think we saw a lot of versions of that happening throughout the tech backlash that immediately followed that. And I think that's kind of a shame. So, and yeah, I miss having all those offices. There were just so many. I don't, I mean, I don't live in San Francisco anymore, so I don't know what the state of office culture is there, but I can't imagine it's at all like there was then. Fun story. My first job in Silicon Valley was I was the sales guy for Envoy, which is the visitor sign-in system for all the offices at the, especially at the peak of the offices, right? The iPads. And so I basically went to every single office in San Francisco and, and we, we were pre, pre-funding when I joined. So I, I had to walk the streets of Soma with my laptop bag and my, my demo iPad. And I'd go to all of these offices. And 2013, 2014 era of Silicon Valley was, it was every three or six months, some new office would open and they would do this big splashy piece. This is when TechCrunch actually still kind of even mattered. And it would be like the Dropbox office has, you know, a guitar room so that, you know, <laughs> people can, because it, it was all, it was all LARPing, cargo culting Google and Facebook. But it was doing it in San Francisco, so it had to be cooler than, you know, the, the free smoothies and whatever was happening down, down the peninsula. Um, that was also peak bus. Remember those bus fights and people getting really upset about the techie buses and they were all equipped with all this nice stuff. It just feels like a very a simple era, right? The, the fights were a lot less significant. That, that Envoy logo, by the way, is still on the corner of Bryant and 4th Street. I don't know if the office is still there, but I, I walked past it. I, I don't know if that's the office you're talking about, but it's the one that's really right there. And the bus fights, for those who don't know it, I used to take this bus. What corner was it? 24th in Valencia, right? All the Google and, and Facebook buses would show up there. I'd walk to it. And the funny thing is, because they didn't want the negative mojo of a big Facebook or Google logo on the buses. Because at some point, somebody threw rocks at the buses and there was a protest. So it wasn't always clear what bus you were getting on. So every once in a while, there was a commuter at Facebook group, a random Googler would get on the wrong bus and be on the Facebook bus. And this is when the Google Plus thing was still going on. And so, oh, holy shit. It's like, it's imagine the fucking space shuttle and somehow a Soviet cosmonaut got on the fucking thing. You're like, oh shit, now what? Everyone cover your screens. What do we do with this guy? Would he get whacked? Like, what would even happen Like after he got to Facebook? They didn't let him get off. Did they drive him to Mountain View? What even happened? But that was, that was part of the, and remember, oh, you'd find it funny that the Tesla side of it. Speaking of other buses, there was a shuttle bus from the Caltrade in Palo Alto to the various campuses. And again, also, the buses didn't have fucking signs on them. And so there was a guy on a bus. The door was closing. I saw a Facebook bag. So I jump on it. And the last second I go, wait a second. This is the Facebook bus, right? He goes, no, no, no. This is a Tesla one. But you can get on if you want. You got to give me a look. I'm like, out of here. Anyhow, this was the bus culture back in the day in which, you don't know, you could get on the wrong fucking bus and just end up in the wrong, in a different company. You know, a whole different world awaits you if you got on the wrong bus. <laughs> Very Disney esque. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The bus wars. Did we sufficiently distract from your question there? 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, something about public intellectuals and going back to building or something, I think is the question, right? <laughs> oh, I can move on. It seems you didn't want to face that side of yourself. Well, no, I hate facing any side of myself, which is why I never watch media. Sorry, Eric, I never watched the podcast. Although I get more and more recognized because of it. So clearly it's doing pretty well. But no, no, no I, I wouldn't want to be a public intellectual in the United States because the U.S. is basically anti-intellectual. I want to be an, an intellectual in France where you actually are a celebrity. I want to be like Bernard-Henri Lévy, who did not read when the Prix Goncourt, just to be clear, but to check off the thing in the jingle card, but, but who has his shirt undone, basically down to his belly button, frankly. And uh, I remember there was a, there was a, a Twitter, uh, a French comedian who said that like Macron has invoked emergency powers to unbutton the last button. I'm <laughs> sure to finally just unbutton the entire thing. But anyway, in France, where intellectuals actually are celebrities, I'd want to be it. In the US, what, what do you get out of it? Nothing. Nobody cares. The, US, the, the business of America is business, right? Not, not intellectualizing, in my opinion. Yeah, I definitely think a lot of the public intellectuals see, I really hate that term anyway, but whatever, the thought leader stage. Um, That's a better term, yeah. That's better. Anyway, but I, I think that in, in the US, a lot of it will just suck you into punditism. If you, you, it's not really, it's not truly like in everything just ultimately to become super politicized. You have to pick a side. You have to go on the shoddy squat box and talk about your views and stuff. And that to me is, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not really public intellectualism, it's punditism. And so it's, it's a different way of being. So, I mean, who's a public intellectual, Eric? Who would you cite as a public intellectual in American life? Other than the subset crew. Yes, the subset crew, fine. Other than subset. It's a good question. We have experts. Experts. The little cleric that's trotted out to enforce some political view with his studies. But other than that. Noam Chomsky? No, sort of. Well, I guess so. Tell account. True. No. Yeah, I, I think there are very few university people who kind of are growing their own direction. And then I think Substack, it's amazing the monopoly Substack has on, on the true kind of actual people who think. One way to maybe think about Substack is the weapons makers or the Substackers are making these weapons, i.e. these ideas that people on Twitter who are actually in the fight will deploy, those, use those weapons, shape those weapons, experiment with those weapons. What do you think of that analogy? Kind of a fun metaphor. I mean, the all-in, all-in podcast yesterday. Arthur Hayes, who's a crypto person, wrote a Substack. David Sachs is using that chart, right? So, I think yes, Substack is upstream of everything. Yeah, it's interesting, and it's you know how you know the various the various contending parties in a war will have their various arms suppliers and will be on some some ammunition standard. It seems very clear when they're getting the ammo from like Curtis versus Richard versus whoever else versus Noah Smith. You can definitely say, oh, that's an AK, that's an AR pardon raffle, that's some weird Belgian fall thing. Yeah, you can definitely like, hey, see I saw how... that gun in a group chat. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I saw that meme being used. <laughs> you you lost a meme yesterday. One thing I loved about your piece, Nadia, was that it de demonstrated the differences within sort of different Silicon Valley factions that have not been identified before and, or, or to the same degree, and that those differences have seemed to been amplified 10 years ago. I, I don't know if that piece would have been um, written in the same way. And it, it jives with another piece you wrote, which people should read called Idea Machines, where you talked about how an idea of effective altruism gets popular and gets power. It's not just sort of intellectual li literature behind it. It's this kind of interplay between uh, it's this ecosystem that is built around it from cultural artifacts to events to communities to capital to relationships, policymakers. And you, you know, people call it the cathedral, right? You were talking about it earlier, Antonio, sort of the interplay between media, academia, you know, government, corporations. 
And for an idea or a movement to really take off, it has to have its own, it has to have its own relationship with, with those broader, you know, sort of institutions. Is that, is that a good articulation, Nadia? Yeah. Yeah. As you're saying, I was thinking that, again, we, we've talked a lot about very specific figures or people here and sort of when we describe worldviews, but I think because individuals ultimately end up having a lot of their own eccentricities, I'm actually much less interested in the actions of specific people so much as like the patterns and the systems that they fit into are these, yeah, these movements or these idea machines or whatever, these blobs of ecosystems that people are aligning themselves to or not. And then I thought about, I was like, oh man, that makes me kind of much more Devocian than I want it to be. And <laughs> underemphasizing the, the individual talent. But yeah, I don't know. I, just, I think you can learn a lot just from sort of looking at those systems and patterns, maybe much more than just analyzing the behavior of one specific individual. Yeah. And, and typically, yeah, people have lumped tech into a monolith. And what you've done is show that different movements, what we've done in this episode is debate what those different movements are doing currently. What is the difference between those movements and what should they be doing to, you know, reach the, to achieve the sort of impact that, that they want to have. And it's been a, it's been a good conversation. Nadia, thanks so much for, for joining. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Nadia. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Hey, it's Eric. There's no shortage of tech and business podcasts, but few actually give you a true and regular dose of the future. The A16Z podcast is the exception. It's a lighthouse for founders, breaking down the most important trends in technology and business. Struggling to keep up with the pace of change in AI? They just spoke to top builders from OpenAI, Anthropic, Roblox, and more. Wondering what on earth is happening up in space? They just dropped a series on the satellite economy. Or questioning whether recent salary transparency legislation will cause clarity or chaos? They just broke down how companies can not only survive, but thrive in this new environment. Host Steph Smith sits down with some of the world's most influential people. Movers who have a track record of being both early and right, like Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist John Mather, and A16Z co-founders Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. So go ahead, eavesdrop on the future by following the A16Z podcast on your favorite podcast app and tell them I sent you.